Hi friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Tie That Binds podcast. Last week, I uh, I sat down with a fellow named Sean. Sean's a local historian, filmmaker, and fellow podcaster. When I reached out to Sean and asked him if he'd be interested in, in talking with me, he was very quickly uh, open to the idea, and we were very quick to set a date for him and I to sit down and talk. I was actually quite nervous when Sean showed up. I, I didn't really know what to expect, and very quickly uh, I determined him and I could really be good friends. So we came down to the studio, we sat down, and Sean proceeded to tell me all about the history of Trenton, and uh, threw in a neat little story about the Great Explosion. So thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, here's my chat with uh, Sean Scally. you like me a little bit closer like that? Yeah, that's all right. All right. All right, Sean. Um, I really appreciate you uh, coming here today, and uh, we're going to speak about the history of Trenton. So can you can you give us a rundown of who you are, your credentials, what you've been doing with your life? Well, I don't have many credentials, but uh, I, I came from a small town in northern Ontario, Kirkland Lake, and I joined the military when I was really young, and that meant I was able to retire when I was still really young at 38. And um, I went on to work for uh, Ontario Power Generation, um, and then I retired. And in retirement, I did a lot of things like um, kind of bucket list things, like um, I was acting with the Belleville Theatre Guild, so I did a few uh, musicals and uh, things like that. Not that I've ever been really a musical, Ty. Um, I I can't carry a tune really in a bucket, as they say, right? Um, so it really got me into the, um, a drama part of things and story. I like storytelling, of course, and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, which ended up, and I was into photography. So I was doing a lot of photography in the area after I retired. And one thing kind of led to another and I wanted to play around with film and I started making these, um, small documentary or, you know, films about things. And, uh, this led to doing a lot more and I really enjoyed I think the thing I enjoy the most is the research researching a story and bringing it all together and uh, the hardest part and when we're talking about hard things about this is uh finding all the visual uh, material to put in a film and uh so that's probably what drives that uh film uh film wanting to do documentary stories and and another thing is i can pretty much do them by myself i i have done some dramas and had actors and all that stuff it's a lot of work <laughs> so you're you're actually a filmmaker documentary maker that's what i would say i i do now mostly and 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 recently and, and during the pandemic i started with the podcasts which is another thing that allows me to talk about history things and uh, and do the research. And I think that's what I really like doing is finding the story and, and then telling it. Um, so, so so I've seen your stuff online. It's good stuff. You, you definitely know what you're doing. Thanks, man. And we're definitely going to put some links in the show notes to get people to your documentary and, uh, and, to, and to your podcast. Thanks. Yeah, one of them I do kind of incognito. I guess now that I'm telling you, it's not really incognito. But it's um, it's the Confessions of a Hangman, and it uh, talks about Canada's history with the death penalty, and um, I used a pseudonym for that one. 
only because it's kind of dramatic, right? I tell the story with a with an Irish accent, <laughs> which I'm Irish, so that's okay. Yeah, that's all right. If you're <laughs> one with them, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. So, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Trenton, and uh, and I want to hear because you're a storyteller and a historian. The the local historical society sent me to you. Um, one morning, I just woke up and I thought, you know, I've lived here long enough. I would love to know more. I'd love to know more of this town. Reached out to the Historical Society, and they sent me right to you. You and I started talking. I've been checking out your content, and, and I'd love to know the story of this area that I that my wife and kids in now call home. Yeah, uh, no problem. It's the, the story of Trenton. The people at Trentport, great people. They just don't like to be on uh, on any kind of media, so they always send folks to me. But again, I've done a lot of the research on a lot of these stories with them, and they've been a lot of help in a lot of this uh, storytelling. Uh, Trenton Trenton has a pretty long history, you know, dating back in this Samuel de Champlain uh, making his way into this area and kind of scouting it out and doing some uh, charts. And so we're talking the mid-1600s, you know, when Champlain was, was around here. But the story kind of really always revolves around the Trent River. The Trent being this main artery into the interior of what we'll call Upper Canada or, you know, Canada West eventually in the 1800s. So uh, things that centered around this, uh, the river. And the river what it uh, meant to Trenton is um, it's a power source, kind of like, you know, we have an electric, um, uh, like a Ontario power generation, you know, nuclear plant. Well, in those days, without those, we had the river was the source of power and uh, everybody wanted to put a, a water wheel into it to get things turning. And they started doing things from, of course, uh, woolen mills and grist mills and of course, sawmills, which will come later in a big Gilmore story for this area, which was a big uh, operation. So uh, things revolved around the river. There was a large steamboat contingent that ran out of here that, you know, around Picton. And of course, it became a, a port of call in the Bay of Quinty because people didn't like to sail around from coming from York or from Kingston, going to York, unless Toronto. Um, they didn't want to sail around the dangerous, you know, Prince Edward County Peninsula because, you know, you had a lot of waves. And, and for the most part, we, they weren't in schooners or big ships. They were pretty small stuff. And, of course, Trenton would be the port just before you could get to the carrying place where you had to carry your canoe or your boat over and get into uh, Preskill Bay, Weller's Bay. So actually, the town of Caring Place, that name isn't just happenstance. That actually has some significant meaning behind it. Yeah, the Carrying Place itself is very, was a very important part of the um, infrastructure uh, to move goods and during the War of 1812, move soldiers safely between Brockville, Kingston, and into the York area and down to Niagara for all of these battles like, you know, Isaac Brock and all of those things that happened in Niagara. Everything came through the uh, the carrying place. And um, I, I'm working on a, a film, a uh, small documentary about that area. And, of course, we have the Murray Canal there now. Um, 
there's a real good expert. I'll give you his name. His name is Dan Buchanan. He's the history guy of, of Brighton. Really interesting uh, guest with to have on here. Yeah, please and thank you. Yeah, I'll get his information. I'd love to speak with him. Yeah. So, so uh, being a staging area for moving things between Kingston and Toronto made Trenton a popular port right on the river, at the river's mouth. Um, and knowing full well, the, the river's mouth was like a big cedar swamp. That's why there's so many cedars in this area when you go like between Presque Hill or whatever. Um, and these people carved out a living on that river. Now, we did have a road between Kingston and Toronto, York, um, but the problem was the Trent River was in the way. So um, an entrepreneur uh, who ended up, her husband dying and Mary Bleeker taking over, ran the ferry that ran between Trent Port, which was on the west side, and the east side at that time was called Anwood. And uh, she would run the ferry back and forth and charge, you know, for moving carts and animals and everything else. So what year would that have been? Well, it would have been pre-1837. So it was about 1830s. They, um, they actually built a bridge and put Mary out of business. So, so where do... So we'll roll back a little bit here. Yeah. Where, where do the local natives fit into this story? So the indigenous population of this area, um, it, it did change hands long before we, you know, Europeans were here, but it changed hands a lot of times, but ended up mostly in the hands of the Mississaugas of this area, which is an Ojibwe tribe, I believe. And, um, they used the area of caring place like we were, spe- uh, we were speaking of as a meeting place. And they knew it. They're the ones that really created the carrying place. I think they had a name for it. And Dan says uh, the name basically translate to, I pick up my canoe <laughs> and I move it across. And, uh, so it was long known as a, an area to, to not go around at the peninsula, but there were, uh, um, smatherings of, um, Mississauga mostly. And, um, but what happened, we had, we had a thing called the gunshot treaty. It's where they kind of, it's still a a contentious treaty issue, the gunshot treaty. You can look it up. It's an interesting read. And, uh, they fired a, um, uh, it was meant to say, if I fired a rifle over my head at the carrying place, we'll say consequent, wherever the gunshot could be heard we're going to have a treaty for this land. Now, the Native people, I believe, believed it was kind of like rent because they were going to rent the land because they kept promising every year we're going to give you all this, this, you know, ammunition or whatever, uh, properties. That's why it's still contentious, of course. But uh, that gunshot must have been really big because they expropriated the land all through here and all the way to Toronto along the East Coast and as uh, along the northern side of uh, Lake Ontario and as far north as Rice Lake. So that's a pretty big gunshot. I don't even know if you'd hear a cannon that far, but <laughs> that's how all that land was, hmm, exp- I'll say expropriated, for lack of a better word. Um, and then what happened is, because of a lot of Europeans coming here, uh, you know, they say some 90% of Indigenous people died just by disease, that they were not, you know, like Europeans had had dealt with yeah like smallpox and uh, some of those some of those diseases that came over with the with with the europeans that weren't native to this land yeah so a lot a lot of a lot of indigenous people died off and a lot uh, decided to 
get away from the Europeans and moved into the more northern areas, say north of Rice Lake and Quartha Lakes and these areas, just just to get away from, um, you know, for, for them, it must have been terrible. Like these people showed up and, and uh, you know, your family dies. It's uh, not a good thing. And and the European would have showed up and just assumed that 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 the land was theirs to be taken. I mean, I mean that's that's basically what happened. That's basically what happened. And and uh, what happened is uh, another controversial issue is uh, is with what they call the the uh, family compact. And the family compact was a bunch of uh, rich uh, Protestant white guys and. Uh, they were controlling who was getting all the land. Anwood was given to um, that whole area on the east side of Trentport, just one area, was given to a Bishop Strawn, who was uh, part of, you'll see his name in lots of streets, part of this family compact. And they were rewarding their cronies with, you know, large parcels of land. Even if they didn't live here, if they owed somebody money, they said, oh, yeah, here's 1,200 acres in Northumberland County, it's all yours, and they would just sell it off, right? So, um, yeah, they were they were controlling a lot of the land, and uh, that's another controversial issue historically. So, in a few weeks, um, an old another friend of mine I've known for years, who has immersed himself in the native community uh, and and become a social worker in that uh, sphere of work, he'll be here to speak of that. So it'd be interesting to see what happens when he comes in and speaks about it. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you have to, what you think about that episode, and and maybe we can come back around to that. Yeah, definitely. I've I've been doing a lot of reading about it in relation to this story about the uh, caring place and the Murray Canal, and uh, yeah, we're we're we don't have a great track record, uh, and I'll say our ancestors don't have a great track record, and in some, you know hard and way we're trying to make amends i hope but uh it's uh it's it's a long path for sure it's definitely something that deserves its own topic but uh for now we're going to carry on you mentioned 1837 so maybe we'll pick back up there so things are happening here we got a ferry going from one side of the river to the other yeah and then she gets put out of business by a bridge and there's a big old rickety covered bridge and uh it was uh um Designed and built by, uh, um, what was his name? Hugh Nickel. Hugh Nickel Baird. Hugh Nickel Baird. It, who had worked on the Rideau Canal and a whole bunch of things. Surveyed it out and they made this uh, kind of a, a new type of bridge that was suspended between the, the piers that uh, don't appear there anymore. But uh, And it ran, it was there forever and then until they changed it to a, uh, a metal bridge with a swinging portion. It always had a swinging portion to allow masted boats in and out. Um, but uh, in the 1860s, we had Gilmore Lumber show up. And Gilmore Lumber was huge in the Ottawa, New Brunswick, Ottawa area, up the Ottawa River. Huge holdings, very rich Scottish family who was one of the, uh, I would say, the Scottish mafia of, uh, of Ottawa um, that ran everything in Ottawa. And um, uh, they came and they, they put a big sawmill right here on the river. And that really became, I think, the, the kind of uh, pivotal moment for Trenton. And then Trenton just grew from that because there was jobs, there was lumber coming down the river, uh, always down the river to be sawn at uh, Trenton. And the same thing was happening in Belleville, but with other companies. 
but the Gilmore's was was really big, and they built the biggest sawmill at that time in I'm going to say North America, I think Canada for sure. And it was so big that they just couldn't get enough logs to put through its saws. Um, and it was modern, and uh, they had the first lighting system on the on the piers, and they put in the first phone system. Geez, I think in in the whole area, maybe in Upper Canada at that time, or Canada West. But it only went between the mill and the owner and the manager's house. That's it. So <laughs> that was the only phone calls you would ever get. They put in the first, they're the people responsible for the first uh, fire brigades, uh, all of that. Because uh, David Gilmore was like totally into the community and he ran the snowshoe club and the, you know, polo or cricket club and all that stuff. So they were pretty influential, huge family. And then all of a sudden they were gone. Um, did I, can I assume there was a fire? Well, always a fire. So one of the biggest things in Trenton's history is fire. Fires consumed big portions of town, probably like a lot of other towns around. And, uh, yeah, fire, uh, did occur at some of their plants, but they rebuilt. Uh, but what happened was, is that they just couldn't get any more lumber. That's when they went through the whole buying of, um, parts, uh, parts of where Algonquin Park is now to log it up around Canoe Lake and those areas. But there's, that's a whole other story about Gilmore bringing things down. That's a whole other show. But uh, needless to say, very famous thing. They created the um, a different type of door and window sash factory. But it kind of made Trenton an industrial area. And for a lot of times, that was it. Industry was going to be here. The river was there. You could get things in and out. And that leads us into World War One. And the need for artillery shells, and the, they couldn't make them in Europe, uh, so they started making them in Canada, which was still controlled by, you know, England for the most part. I'm glad you brought that up. I definitely want to hear the story from you. I watched your documentary, Playing With Fire. Excellent stuff. Thanks. We're going to include a, uh, a link to that, so hopefully everyone checks that out. But yeah, I'm, I definitely want to hear from you that story. It's a kind of, uh, um, I love conspiracy. So there's a little bit of conspiracy to all this. And um, I was lucky enough that there was an ex-school teacher here. His name was John Milady. He wrote a book called Trenton Explosion. And uh, I interviewed him. And uh, through that, I got most of the story. Because I was fascinated that I, there's ruins in the north part of town here that nobody knows what they are. But they're part of this old um, ammunition factory. And so between... Uh, John Milady's story and some other research and I got a researcher in England to send me the actual files for the company we kind of hashed I was able to hash out the story a little bit better but what we had was we had a, a make work project that needed uh, they needed uh, artillery shells and, and uh, gunpowder and all kinds of things the manufacturing of the plant itself um, was a cash cow for this town because they were paying these crazy wages just to build the place. And people were coming from all over the world to work here, like, you know, from Macedonia and all over the place to work. And there was tons of work to be done in construction and, uh, you know, concrete and all the things that they built. And um, some people were 
were on the payroll and they'd come in the morning and check in and then go downtown and shoot pool, I guess, and and then show up at the end of the day. But it was like a, it was a license to print money for people, and there was everybody was on on the on the payroll in some capacity, and um, of course the influx of people. There was no place for them to live. They were living in basements of people's houses and stuff. So once it was constructed uh, at great cost, about four million dollars, which was at that time was a big deal. Uh, they started to produce, um, we're going to say gunpowder for lack of a better word, but explosives and uh, um, smokeless powder because, you know, the old days of gunpowder made lots of smoke. Well, you want smokeless powder, cordite, I think they call it. Um, everything that they used was like crazy toxic. All kinds of different acids and uh, different chemicals that were used in the process were were completely like... Um, toxic, I guess, you know, and not by environmentally friendly anyway. So, I mean, I, I find all this fascinating, but, uh, the lack of health and safety is what immediately is immediately where my brain goes. Um, I've been a part of health and safety committees. I've, I've been a part of lots of health and safety training in this day and age. You have to be safe about what you do. And nothing sounds safe about making TNT back in the early 1900s. I can't even imagine where where that would have been. Yeah, and it, it's not like it was kind of a, a new process in making TNT, which is pretty much like a waxy substance. It's a wax, and it becomes really it, it'll burn readily burn, but it becomes an explosive when it's con, it's contained inside like a shell or something like that or a kind of like a pipe bomby type thing, you know, something that's going to contain the explode, like the uh, conflagration of the, of the TNT. But TNT was the most dangerous thing they made there. I'm glad you mentioned that. Excuse me. And um, so that process, it was one of the most dangerous processes they did. It's because you have to use like a big pressure cooker when they, when they make it and it becomes a slurry of different acids and they have to be added in a certain amount of time at a certain amount of pressure or you get a volatile reaction that can get out of hand. So in the end, when we have the explosion, this is what happens is there's an improper reaction that causes an explosion that, you know, blows up the whole place, ends up burning the place down. And it burns the place down because they're all connected by these kind of like little raised rails that move all the chemicals from different buildings so they're kind of interconnected slightly but um it becomes a sketchy story and there's lots of heroic stories during the explosion and during the fire that i i talk about in the film but it becomes a sketchy kind of conspiracy story because of a couple of things and what happens is the they're making TNT and they're selling it to the United States, which is making money because the Americans get into the war. But we have to remember the Americans were financing Britain during the war. So Britain had to pay the Americans, uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars just, just for grain and ammunition and everything. So they were quite in debt. Every bit of TNT they sold to the U.S. came off of their debt. So it was a good thing. Now, they were forced at a, uh, a meeting of allied countries that the Trenton output would be, had to be sold to the Italian uh, government who was fighting with the allies. And um, 
But the problem is the Italian didn't have any money. So it didn't matter. The British were going to pay for this one way or the other, and that was a big debt. So this is the whole climate. And then in the last few weeks, you know, they're being forced to incur more debt by giving the TNT to um, um, Italy and not selling it to the U.S., which makes them money. And uh, I, I think in, in the conspiracy that I discussed, that there was a mindset that this plant had to go. Like, you know, if it's, it's going to be a liability. And they knew the war was coming to a close. And uh, so for the first time in, in five years, the, the uh, people running the plant give everybody off. Like, they're off for Thanksgiving weekend, right? They've never done that. They work 24-7 all the time. Then all of a sudden, everybody's off except one crew working in the most volatile part of the plant, mixing TNT, and their main supervisor doesn't go show up for work that day, so somebody else fills in, but we don't know who it is. And, of course, everything goes awry, and uh, we have a fire explosion. The place blows up all night. Several huge explosions shatters all the glass in town, and knock chimneys down and people sat you know by where mccurdy's is now up on the hill watching all the fireworks and people had pieces of rail and brick stuck in their house and uh, we get this huge disaster but the war ends a couple of weeks later and eh, nobody kind of talks about it and everybody gets their insurance uh, assessment you know gets it paid for their insurance so i can understand why you would think that there would be some conspiracies here um, rec- record keeping up until maybe even 30 or 40 years ago was probably non-existent. No health and safety standards. Um, it wouldn't be hard to fudge time cards if they actually used a manual time clock. Uh, they would have been easy to fudge. Um, attendances, uh, who was where when they said they were there, mm-hmm. uh, the comings and goings of some of the Johns and Lackeys and uh, Swampers that worked there. Uh, probably very few security guards on site, even though we're dealing with sensitive matter. Um, I could totally see why you're leaning in that direction, especially when we're talking with huge sums of money over 110 years ago. Yeah, and and uh, you got We have to remember that it was all under the, you know, auspicious guise of the war. So you don't talk about things, you don't report things, and the town. And the people working there are making money, and therefore you don't want any negative press, so you don't report things, you don't talk about things. It doesn't, you know, maybe a little thing in the press saying, "Oh, a guy got burned" or whatever, but you never get the whole truth. They even had their own little hospital to treat injuries, so that it wasn't treated in town. They, they, they would. It was a kind of total control of what was going on. They did have a security uh, uh, system of, you know, guards and stuff. And um, because it was a war factory. Um, but uh, there's some coincidences we discuss in the film that are actually, you know, I like a conspiracy. So so what ended up, end up, what ended up happening here? Um, so there's an explosion. Everyone got paid out. The, uh, the company closed, ceased operations here in Trenton, closed up shop. Uh, I imagine there had to have been some sort of cleanup. That's a, that's a good point because we're going to get to part of the cleanup. So uh, it, they did. So what had happened is they had insured their plant for uh, $5 million. Funnel, in a funny um, coincidence, it was with the Barclay Bank in Scotland. 
the head of the Barclay Bank sat on the munition board and they got their insurance settlement like within four or five days to pay for that plant. They settled out all the broken glass, you know, uh, claims over the next couple of years. But they basically washed their hands of the plant because while the plant was operating, people had talked about unionizing it. And uh, the British government said, no, no, we're not unionizing this. We have control of the plant. As soon as the plant was destroyed for more or less, you know, uh, was gone, they washed their hands of the plant and said, oh, it's Canadian government. It's all yours. You know, we got paid our our $4.5 million, I think they're claimed they got paid. So they they did pretty good, you know, they did pretty good getting their money back from the plant. Then uh, the plant was kind of left into the hands of the Canadian government who for a time had uh, was trying to sell it to DuPont and people like that. And, and, and they tried to make a go of parts of the plant that had survived, but it never really took off. Now getting to the cleanup, like I said, the TNT is a waxy substance, so... Uh, there was a few horrific stories where people got some of the TNT away from the explosion and saved the town from a huge explosion. and uh, But the cleanup never really happened. So the cleanup never really happened. They did cart away some of the, uh, the raw materials, some of the acid and sulfur piles and all that stuff. But that area is still vacant right now and for good reason, you know. Um, but one of the good stories is, and this is how John Mullady, who wrote the book, came about it as a teacher. One of his students was telling him, oh, yeah, we go down to the old plant and we find some of the TNT and we light it on fire. Ha <laughs> ha, it's like it burns. And he's thinking, what? What? What is this all about? So he, that's why it got him going. And what happens in an area that's still cordoned off in, in that area now by Sydney Street, um, the TNT would leach to the surface. And it's a yellow waxy substance and people knew it was there, but then it became a concern only in the eighties. People, the town didn't want to talk about it because if the town talks about it, they're going to have to do something about it. It's a super uncomfortable situation. Nobody wants to talk about that elephant sitting in the room because for fear of public face and the, the financial uh, responsibility would, would have to fall on municipal and, and uh, provincial shoulders because this particular company likely ceases to exist and ceased to exist for many 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 years before that so where where's that money coming from or you can't get blood from a stone exactly there's nobody to hold to be responsible held responsible so john Mullady was really they were the town councils were angry with him for writing just writing about it but there was a, a fella who was a professor and i can't remember his name right now he was into researching this and he collected a little coffee can full of waxed TNT that had leached to the surface and he put it in the back of his car and he was always trying to tell counsel and educate people about what's going on. Uh, well, he told one too many people and the cops had to stop him and he had this little can of TNT in his back of his car, so he was charged. And uh, in court, he was able to tell the story if he was doing the research, trying to bring attention. He never got convicted of anything but it really brought it to the forefront so between the country and the province and the town there was a a cleanup cleanup and i got quotation marks i'm doing here um there really wasn't a cleanup what they did is they scraped off a layer of dirt they put down a um a membrane over the worst area and then they covered it again with a 
you know, two or three feet of earth. And so that the TNT that's there will not leach to the surface anymore. They never said it's all gone. They just said it won't leach to the surface anymore. And that, that would be it. But you can see now in that specific area, there's really no industrial use for it because, and it's kind of like trying to buy an old gas station that has the tanks in the ground. Nobody wants to incur the expense of cleaning up the property if you buy it. So it's just cordoned off and fenced off and it's uh, not admissible. You know, you can't go in it, but you can go around some of the ruins that are still, still there. And the, the Domtar, it's not Domtar anymore. It has another name, the factory. They have a kind of a hill that they keep pushing over top of it. You can see it in town. That's called Bunker Hill, that hill. And it's, it's changed shape because of what they've been doing. But, uh, but yeah, it's uh, still a dirty little area that they don't want to talk about, I'm pretty sure. So so uh, industry in any town, in my opinion, is, is uh, super, super important. Um, are you aware of any backlash or how maybe this changed any other industry coming to town? Um, specifically, maybe uh, if, if you have a company and you're thinking about moving to, to the Quinney West area, is have they made that process harder or is it easier to attract big companies here, even though there's a bit of a checkered past with industry in town? I, I think, yeah, they, they've attracted a lot of business and a lot of industry. They've moved the industrial park to another area of town and uh, there's lots of other areas. It's just because it's just that this small area that used to contain the, uh, the uh, munition plant is uh, kind of a no-go place. It's, um, I don't know what the hist or the future is for that piece of property, but I, I suspect it's just going to stay what it is. You know, you can't go there. They don't want people digging there. And, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's one of those, um, little places like area 51 that they want to blank out on, on, you know, Google view, right. <laughs> on Google maps. <laughs> so, so you make this movie about this. Has there been any backlash from anybody in uh, town council about it? Has anybody maybe thought you overstepped your boundaries? Or because it's been so many years, they can't possibly harass you for speaking about things that actually happened. Yeah, no, I've never had any backlash. Actually, everybody likes it, including current councillors and mayor. Uh, they like the history of it. Uh, everybody knows that it's uh, it's just... Um, uh, a no man's land or no person's land anymore. It's, it's, uh, the collateral damage of the great war. I, I think that's what a lot of people will think is it's, it's very similar to a lot of other places that have collateral damage because of the things that we've undertaken during the great war, world war two. Um, and that it's, um, small price to pay, but okay, we have a piece of land we can't use. Um, I'm pretty sure it's monitored, like nothing leaches. Um, because it's not a liquidy substance, nothing leaches anywhere. It just kind of sits there, like, you know what I mean? Like a, a non-dangerous bomb. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to speak uh, even just for a few minutes about actually making a movie. This isn't a direction that I was anticipating going in, but um, the creative process of, of playing music or, or podcasting or making a movie, 
Um, I'm quite interested. Uh, would you mind speaking on wh- where you actually begin to make? And this isn't just a doc. Like this is like an hour long. This is a full length movie with an enormous amount of illustrations, an enormous amount of information. You've got actors, actresses, voiceovers. You know the whole process. Would you mind just uh, touching on that? Yeah, it's it's it comes to the part of storytelling, and and only so much of the story is interesting to hear from a talking head. So you know, I I. I interviewed John Mulaney. He gives a lot of uh, credence and he's kind of like brought the story up to the forefront. So I like giving him credit and I, and I've, I asked him if I can use the information. He said, oh yeah. But then what uh, I bring that dramatic kind of theater part into it. Um, people like to hear stories and they kind of like that soundscape and they like different voices to tell. It's kind of their portrayals of characters. And there's some hero characters that we portray in there. And um, one of the things that I did with this film, because there's so little visual material that actually can tell a story, is I did film uh, the actions of actors, and then I, I vectorized it as an animation and used that as part of the storytelling. And a lot of people really enjoyed the kind of animated vector. It's like a drawing, if you've, you've seen it. And... Uh, it kind of brings the story home. But I think the biggest part of the storytelling is, and it's really popular here, because the people, um, they've heard about it. It's close to home. So it really speaks to them when they hear, when people that live here hear about, you know, this actually happened here. And I recognize the street names and I recognize some of the names. And um, so in making that, I thought about, um, the storytelling part of it rather than then a straight documentary where you kind of document what happened, which is cool, like a nice, but kind of add an entertainment element to it. You kind of have to have a little bit of a hook to get people to, to watch it. Right. Well, and, and with today's society, everyone's attention spans are about as uh, short as a goldfish, right? So you do, you have to have a hook, you have to keep them hooked. You have to drag them through the story, <laughs> keep it interesting enough. You know, I, um, it's tough, but sometimes content alone isn't enough to keep people engaged, right? You have to keep it exciting, colorful, specifically when it comes to movies. So I would imagine that, yeah, I imagine that's that's its own unique set of skills and challenges. Yeah, it, it's especially when you're dealing with that you don't have any real footage. You have to create your footage, and that's the thing is for filmmaking, um imagery is super important if you if you don't have imagery you have to make your own imagery and that's like you know like the historical moments we see you know heritage minutes they recreate a a moment in history um and it's no small task and even for these bigger <coughs> sorry uh, for these bigger uh entities like cbc or whatever they're they're big tasks and there's actors and then what happens when you have actors there's there's unions and then there's crew and then there's the cost of from everything from, you know, keeping the crew and uh, feeding the crew and the equipment costs. So uh, for me doing the animation part was a, a kind of, and, and I was lucky enough to be part of a theater group and I knew a lot of actors that said, Oh yeah, Sean, I'll help you. I'll feed you pizza and you, you act right. Yeah. So that's pretty much how it works. And I think a lot of independent uh, uh, filmmakers would say to you, yeah, like Kevin Smith and all those guys saying, it's all my friends and my family. That's who financed it, and that's who's in the show. 
because uh, it's the only way to compete, I think, right? Um, but it's cool to, to do the process. Doing the process, you learn. You learn every second of the time you're in that process. But it's consuming. consumes a lot of time. Yeah, some of my personal hobbies, this included, consume a lot more time than I ever thought was possible. <laughs> Even when you're retired, it's awful. You, you think you have all this time when you retire, and you think, how did I work at the same time of doing all this? I got 30 years before I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> it's, But it's not yeah, it's not forever. <laughs> um, What other projects uh, do you have on the go that you can speak of? Yeah, um... It's been, I've kind of tapped out a lot of the really big stories uh, here in uh, Qu in Trenton. And I didn't really tackle the um, the Hollywood North thing because a friend of mine, he, he actually tackled that and there's been a few books, which is a really interesting story. Uh, but the bigger stories, the Gilmore's, the Central Ontario Railway and a few of these other ones, I'm kind of uh, into the really small stories, but there's, there's not a lot of content. So... Uh, that's why I thought with the podcast, I moved to a more national, a bigger uh, pool of information with the uh, confessions of the hangman, because I can speak, well, they, they hung like 670 people. So there's a lot of content. So um, I can move to a more uh, broad base. And luckily enough, there's so many people like myself that either written a blog or a story or something that you can glean all the, the, their hard work you can glean into telling a story. Just like we spoke before we got going here, the, the amount of content that's available at our fingertips is, is almost unfathomable. The, the stories to be told that uh, otherwise were just folktale, right? You just you spoke about them over the dinner table. Maybe your grandparents passed them down to your parents, back down to you, next door neighbors, around a campfire, you know, traveling, uh, traveling gypsies maybe passed along stories <laughs> in folklore, but... But right now, there's just so much information. It's would I would imagine it's it's. A, I mean, I can't imagine it's it's a good time to be a content creator. There's just so much available out there. Yeah, one of the things I did with some of the uh, shorter stories that I that I liked for the area, I did a little podcast. Uh, I put them on YouTube. Is uh, called Tales Strange or Dark Tales of uh, of the Bay of Quinty, and some of the folklorist tales. But they're short, you know, eight minutes and. Uh, there's no visual, real visual content, but they tell these kind of local stories. I guess one of the things for me with all of this film and storytelling is if it never gets put into a digital format of some flavor, how can it be found and live on? So like you say, we go look at all this content. I want somebody that grew up in Trenton to go on YouTube and say, hey, this is about my hometown and they can you know, think that our their history is as important as everybody else's, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, my I told you before, my wife and kids and I are we're not from here, but in the thirty six months we've been here, we're we're super happy we're here and and super proud to tell people, uh, that's where we this is where we call home now. I did a training course this past week on the other side of the other side of Toronto, and we're doing an introductions, and I. I uh, I said this is who I am and this is where I live and it's, uh, and and one of the guys had a story about uh, he was here once years ago, and and yeah I was proud to say this is where I'm from and yeah. and and hearing these stories from people like yourself and and I'm gonna check out that other fellow you gave me his name, uh, very interested to to keep diving into the history of this area I find it quite fascinating. Yeah, there's there's also another whole aspect to it is there's a lot of people that were 
born here that went off into the world and like we're involved in these huge other historical stories that are like uh, you, you wouldn't guess it, but you know, you, you hear this historical story, but the backstory is, well, that guy, he came from Trenton. He was born here in, you know, 1837 and uh, he went off to do something or she, you know, went off to do something. And I love those stories too. Although they, they're not stories of Trenton. I, I still consider them stories like of people from Trenton. So when I started this podcast, um, one of the things I wanted to lean into was to bring everything back around again. Um, if you look at the logo of the show, you'll see I'm wearing a tie, and the tie goes all the way around into an arrow, and it points back to where it begins to bring it all back around. Um, so I, I love uh, stories that tie everything back. Ha, 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 that's the joke, the tie <laughs> that binds. I love a story that ties it all back together again. Um, I'm wondering, Sean, do you have one more quick story? You can, you can, t- I know you do. I don't want to dip into anything you've already repeated a hundred times, oh, yeah, but no. if you've got one more quick story, I would love to hear another one and then uh, we'll let you get back on your way to this beautiful day. Okay, cool. There's a couple of cool stories, but I'm going to hit on one. I actually did a film on this one and, um, there's something, there's a, uh, an occurrence that happened out West in Saskatchewan, um, uh, kind of Saskatchewan Alberta border back in the 1800s it was called the the uh, Frog Lake Massacre and uh, you know again like we're talking about indigenous uh, affairs and um, Indian agents uh, albeit said uh, some people got killed Um, the indigenous people kind of got mad and uh, they and they had good reason I think to be mad Uh, whether to kill somebody I don't know but you know when you're desperate desperate things happen and uh what it was part of that real rebellion time uh louis real rebellion time but one of the main characters who wrote about that was born here like you've heard of the bleasdale boulder uh was reverend bleasdale's grandson and he wrote about um this frog lake massacre which he was part of he survived it only by the good grace of of some of the other indigenous uh women who kind of hid him and took him away but it just goes to show that uh, on the stage, on the on the Canadian and world stage, there was people like that that uh, were involved in some really big uh, um, parts of, of our North American world history, including um, the Comstock Lode. There's, the Comstock Lode was a silver mine that made the Rockefellers, I think it was, billionaires. Well, the guy who started the Comstock Lode was a, was a guy who... Came, came from Trenton, who sold it for next to nothing. Um, and he's actually um, was portrayed by a character on Bonanza because they have his character was based on this guy uh, from Trenton. So those kind of stories, although they're small and they kind of not here in Trenton, I still consider them like Trenton-centric stories. Yeah, I mean, those are the little things. Little, I uh, I had a history teacher in high school referred to that as uh, he would call that popcorn trivia. Yeah, yeah, and I like it. You know, it's because it kind of what it for me what it does, and I try to do for for people that live here is that saying, you know, just just because you live in a small town doesn't mean that it doesn't have an effect on the world. You know, you know, and and I think you know it's it's not like New York or L.A. And we think if we watch American TV, that's where everything comes from, doesn't it? <laughs> It sure would make you think that, right? Yeah. That same history teacher, I remember uh, 
uh, some of the kids in the class thought that our history was too boring. You know, that all the cool stuff happened in England and all the cool stuff happened to our neighbors of the South in America. And, and uh, you know, uh, a lot of cool things happened in uh, what what is now in modern day Italy. But, you know, the ancient Greeks and the Romans and uh, some of the things that uh, Genghis Khan had going on in Asia and, and, you know, the farther south you go into the Americas. And and that was the, the, the gripe was that Canadian history is too boring. And my history teacher made it a point to to say no there's all kinds of things going on here and and uh pulled up a, a a dated map of upper and lower canada like you spoke to and 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 for a few days consecutively we just discussed like no like this this like if there was a battle here and you know ships came into york full of ammunitions and you know like was explaining like there was some a lot of stuff significant things happened here in in this part of the province I found with a lot of discussion, uh, a lot of uh, people that um, like content, story content, they like the macabre part of it. They like true crime. But you know what? There's a lot of those stories around here too. <laughs> Rum runners that ran out of here. And uh, yeah, there's lots of... if There's a little bit for everybody, I think. If you just like pure history, industrial history, fine. You like true crime? Hey, there's there's some of that here too. <laughs> And and you in your podcast you have episodes about this, so we can direct listeners if they're interested. I know I've been listening. Yeah, the Dark Tales, uh, which is on YouTube, uh, uh, the Bay of Quinney, covers some yeah, you know, frozen sailors and uh, shipwrecks in Presqu'ile Bay, and you know things we don't think of. You know, Weller's Bay. There we go by. We see we go to Sandbanks or whatever. We go by Weller's Bay or go to North Beach. Hey, there's a lot of things happen there shipwrecks and pirates and uh, uh, 1812 uh, American uh, American revolutionary soldiers coming over and burning ships, you know, outside of Brighton. You just got to go find it all. That actually happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Maybe we can save that for another time. Um, I'm hoping we can do this again. Oh, definitely. And, and I'll, I'll apologize. I need to be a bit more prepared on my behalf. <laughs> No, I think it's fine. I think it's uh, it's good fun. These kind of things, uh, just talking about it, is always a hope that, it, like for myself, there's a spark goes off in somebody's head that sends them down a rabbit hole of reading and research. That's fascinating. That's what gets me every time. So do me a favor, if you can, and uh, tell me how people can get a hold of you, uh, promote what you want to promote, We'll get it all into the show notes, but uh, yeah, I, I I want you to talk about yeah whatever documentaries, whatever films you've made, how to how to get into them, your podcast, even the one you've got a different name for. You're trying to hide your identity, but oh, that's that's Confessions of the Hangman. But all right, it's well, out, it's, it's already now. out there now. Sorry, all fifty <laughs> people that listen to this show now know. Yeah, so I I'm kind of a I call it a geek of old analog. I have an analog life. I I repair and uh, use a gramophone. So I've repaired gramophones and uh, old Edison cylinders. So I, I do a podcast that's called um, Dead Wax 78s, and it talks about music. It has music on it. Uh, it's all like pre-1930s music. And I talk about different parts of old-time recording, studios, uh, people. I do legends uh, you know, of jazz and, and blues. That's the one podcast that I, I kind of do that one over the winter, and it's just about 40 episodes, I think. The new podcast is uh, Confessions of the Hangman, and that uh, 
that discusses the our flirtation with the death penalty and all of the hangings and i the character i use is is actually the first uh, official hangman his name was john radcliffe and uh so it's a bit of drama kind of that asmr feel you know like that uh, asmr feel and uh, for the most part those ones are available on spotify apple all that stuff and uh, i used to have a website for all my photography which is gone now but um if you Google Sean Scally uh, YouTube, you should come up to the YouTube channel, and there's there's lots of local content, some uh, you know small stories, small uh, videos, and the large ones are there too. And um, uh, people really like the history. The uh, Trent the Trentport Historical Society's Facebook page has a great reach. Like have interactions, like six thousand you know interactions on their articles lots of photographs and lots of stories and it goes by trenton town hall 1867 on facebook i actually urge anybody uh to reach out to their local historical society um even just as simply as on social media just to show their to, to show your support uh what they do is important i i believe uh i i believe it's important and uh and to keep people like yourself doing your thing and 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 not forgetting about the history. It might not be pretty and it might not be very sexy, but it is important and and use the history to make better decisions moving forward. Yeah, and 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 of course, if you like research and reading, there's nothing like finding a treasure in some book, you know, that you didn't know. I totally agree. Totally agree. Uh Sean, I can't thank you enough for being here. This has been a riot. Um I would really like to do this again. And we can expand on some of the other things that you do, and uh, I'll be a little more pre—I'll be a bit more prepared on my end. And uh, yeah, if you would, I would love to have you back, and we'll just keep this discussion rolling. Thanks, Ty. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. If you need some stories told, I'm—I'm I'm usually up for it. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you. We'll talk soon. <laughs>